Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode, a proud member of the Front Row Network of Shows on NPR Illinois. For the past five years, we've been providing hours of content every month, and now we've created the chance for all of you to get even more content. We've officially launched our Patreon page to give you the chance to support our work. There are four separate levels, and each come with their own amazing bonus perks, including exclusive episodes, full movie commentary tracks, and even the ability to choose what episodes we do and be on them with us. To show your support, simply go to www.patreon.com slash network. That's patreon.com slash network. Thank you again, and as always, we'll see you in the front row. I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a mouse. Hello everyone out there in podcast land, this is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, the podcast for all things Disney for NPR Illinois and also for the Front Row Network. I am your host today, my name is Craig. I'm joined by one of my co-hosts today, the other one unfortunately couldn't be here with us today, but we'll find out why in just a minute. So my my co-host that was able to join us, Vanessa Ferguson, how are you today? I'm doing great, Craig. How are you? I'm doing just splendid. And we do have really classing up the place. We have the host of Classics for the Front Row Network. We have Brandon Davis. How are you, Brandon? I'm doing just fine. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing just wonderfully. In fact, I'm so I'm in such a great mood because we have such a very special guest here with us today. I am just thrilled and excited to introduce to all of you, James Mason is here. Uh, well, it's so good to be here. Thank you very much. We are we are just beyond words. We have no words for your presence here with us today, Mr. Mason. How, well, I um, guess I was asked here because I played the part of Captain Nemo in Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Is that why I'm here today? Uh, Yes, yes it is. Uh, Were you in the movie Finding Nemo? Did we find you? Well, I'm here, so yes. (laughs) We did find you. Now, um... How is how 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 are you doing? Are you okay? Is quite splendid, thank you? you. I'm thinking about having some sort of brunch with James Mason. What do you think? That would be it. every Sunday. We have lunch with James Brace. Oh, I'm sorry, brunch with James. Uh, maybe I had too many already. <laughs> it does feel like we've been here before. It certainly it does. does feel like we've been here. <laughs> Old before. friends, so good to see you. But you know. It's really sad that we're missing our friend Brett. Do you do you happen to know where Brett might be, James? I'm I'm sorry I don't. But I'm sure whatever he's doing, it's very worthwhile. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I guess we should just talk about this movie. We are talking today about the Walt Disney classic film, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. And we should start with just where we have seen this movie most recently or our first impressions that we bring to this movie. And again, I mentioned that Brandon is here from Classics. This is really one of those films that verges the line between being a Disney film, but also being a classic film. So Brandon, I want you to go first. Can you talk to us about your experience with this film? I'm sure you've seen it uh, before this latest go and just talk to us all about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 
Yeah, this is a movie I've loved since I was a kid. Um, my local video store used to have a little shelf with all the Disney live actions. And every Friday night, you know, after we would go out to eat, we'd head to the video store. And I would usually swap out, you know, um, 20,000 Leagues and Swiss Family Robinson every other Friday. So, yeah, those are my uh, those are my two favorites. And, um, you know, I, I love the adventure of it and the characters when I was a kid. And as you grow older, you start to learn the actual importance of it in terms of, you know, the whole Disney canon and how important it is to the Disney studios at large and everything. It, it, there's great historical value in it, too. Absolutely. I was more of a Davy Crockett guy myself. Davy Crockett's good. Davy, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. Vanessa, talk to me a bit about your experience with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Well, um, I, I liked it, but it took me a couple viewings to, to see all of it. Um, I, I may, you know, that sea portion is just so tranquil and relaxing. I may have just fallen asleep in the middle of it. And then before you know it, you know, Kirk, Kirk Douglas is running on the beach being chased by a bunch of cannibals. It's a natural story progression. Pardon me. I have just... One more, one question for you. Uh, Vanessa, is it Vanessa? Yes, thank you. Yeah, First yes, of all, James Mason. thank you for watching. Thank you for watching uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And uh -huh. uh, the part that I have the question of is, did you fall asleep while I was on the screen? No, not at all. Your not part, all. Oh, well, riveting. Thank you. That bathes me in relief. Riveting, yes. I would wake up every time you came back onto the scene. Oh, but good, but good. just for the record, uh, after I uh, watched it the first time, I did go back and, and watch the middle part just so I could know what was going on and so we could talk about it. But, Actually, you know, so did I. <laughs> it's it's kind of like, a, like a, a play, like a stage play, um, as opposed to like, maybe modern day films, you, you really feel like you're maybe watching a play. And, the, and, that, and that way, some of the, the dialogue can be a little, I don't know, just made me sleepy. <laughs> well, it's quite an astute, it's quite an astute uh, uh, notion, actually. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. But, you know, I did like it. I did like it. I think it's a gorgeous film. And definitely when every, and I. Mm -hmm. everyone should see this movie. Yes. And it's on Disney Plus, which is how we were able to really view it. And we encourage people to go out there and watch this film on Disney Plus. It's been beautifully restored. And we're going to talk a bit about the production. But let me talk to you about my experience coming to this. I do remember seeing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as a child. But I didn't really remember much beyond the squid and the, the um, kind of largesse of the film. It was really cool to see it this time because, Vanessa, you really talked about how it is more like a stage play. And it, it comes across as this masterclass in acting, whether that is Kirk Douglas or whether that be our friend James Mason. They all bring this certain um, air of almost like this is being crafted for the stage. And that's really interesting because Brandon can speak to the fact that at the time, Walt Disney was thought of as kind of a, a, a child's director and a child's studio. So Brandon, talk to me a bit about how 
this changed that for Walt. And then we'll go to Mr. Mason with his impressions, because I'm sure he's going to give us some really great tidbits from behind the scenes. But, but Brandon, first talk to me about this place in history with this film. Yeah, we talked about last year Snow White being sort of considered Disney's Polly, but this movie could have easily spilt, uh, spilt ruin for the Disney Studios if it hadn't worked out. You know, they spent, I think, like $4 million on this. It was the most expensive movie made up to that time. I think it was even more expensive than Gone with the Wind. So you had, you had all of this, um, very, um, groundbreaking underwater photography. You had, you know, little bits of animation here and there, you know, so it really was sort of Disney finally saying, hey, I can finally play with the big boys, you know, over at Warner Brothers and Fox and all of those studios. So they even used the Fox studios to shoot some of this. So this this movie sort of um, took up real estate over all of Hollywood, kind of. So there, this was a really huge undertaking. And also, Disney had never really used major Hollywood stars in any of his films before. So to see Kirk Douglas and James Mason and Peter Lorre, who were huge names by this time, um, was really probably quite something to see at the time if you were a kid. And also, this movie really deals with really major adult themes that, you know, if you if you were a kid and had just gone to see, you know, Cinderella a couple years before, then going to see 20,000 Leagues dealing with, you know, you know, what's our place in the universe and all of this sort of, you know, questions about humanity, a little deep for a Disney movie. So there was a lot of ground being broken here. And in acting, so we call it layers. Layers. <laughs> many, many layers. In fact, many leagues of layers. But this is the story that Jules Verne brings so magnificently to his book. And what's interesting about this versus the book is when you read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, it's almost like um, each scene is its own little individual story. And then you don't necessarily get uh, some of the seamless way that the screenplay has adapted the story to be able to show you um, the, the full adventure, as it were. Uh, and it's really interesting because there is a huge change that involves our guest, and I want to talk to him about that. Uh, this is a spoiler alert for a film that was made and released in the 50s, but at the end of this movie, our hero, well, maybe hero, anti-hero, whatever he is, dies. We lose Captain Nemo. And in oh, 20,000 no. Leagues Under the Sea, the book... <laughs> We don't lose Captain Nemo. What's interesting about that is that you uh, normally would, like in a movie, maybe see the, the change where they want to make sure that the character remains alive so they can sequelize it and everything else. But in this uh, instance, it actually switches up the role. And in the book, he lives. And in the movie, he perishes. Uh, and with that, we really need to get your thoughts what your first thoughts were on this, Mr. Mason, and uh, what you thought about the production as a whole. Well, if I may give you my impression, I enjoyed the filming, the entire production, working, of course, at the Walt Disney Studio. It was new for legendary actors, I must say, as myself and Kirk. And uh, yes, and so... <clears throat> I think I had a Brett in my throat. Anyway, <laughs> okay, I'm back. I'm sorry, it's Brett. I can't do it. I can't do it. Anyway, 
I was about to just ask, is that an AirPod in your ear, Mr. Mason? Is that, are you really coming through to the new technology? Yes, I'm sorry. Vanessa, you're crying. <laughs> this is so funny. Vanessa's dead. Anyway, so perhaps Jen's Mason will come back every so often, but I need water. Fred, welcome to the podcast. We are so happy to have you. Uh, I'm like, gosh. I meant I mean, you were going, is he going to do this the whole time? I'm like, going, I, mean, I was going with it. I, I was going so. with it. Are you, I know. Uh, I wish I could have, but I'm like going, I had to take a drink of water. Tell us your impressions <laughs> on 20,000 Leagues. Well, my impressions, what? No, I'm sorry. See, I tried. I, that was that was the long time. That's the longest I've ever done. James Mason. I just See, thought I to James, James Mason, Mason didn't realize that he died in the film that he was <laughs> acting in. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, there's a chance that James Mason may come back again. Anyway, I don't know. Anyway, I'm probably moving my head too much for James. Anyway, we digress. Um, I, you know, I had never watched it before. I know. Anyway, <laughs> like, oh, this could get really scary. You might, you know, it's like anyway. Jekyll and Okay, James, go back. Anyway. It's um, like we need to give you two ever... Zoom boxes so that way you can have. <laughs> yes. Ooh, I could do that because I'm editing. Hey, that's cool. <laughs> so, James. No, I'm sorry. Anyway, okay. So, I had never seen this. I had never seen this film before. Now, you know, you've seen like, you know, clips of the harpooning of the of the beast. The beast. Oh, I must tell you about the beast. Anyway, and. Um, but um, but yeah, I hadn't seen it before, so I was truly a joy to watch it. I enjoyed it. So, and James Mason is—I mean, James Mason is really good. So I would say <laughs> an area where no, we really James could... Mason, you're really good. I'm I pale in comparison. <laughs> and we'll yes. certainly talk about James Mason's acting in a bit. But I think Brett, where we should start uh, asking you some questions. You are someone that, uh, as a digital media artist, you really focus on the backgrounds, you focus on the production design, you focus on that. And this is an amazing feat in the 1950s. I mean, I just think about those underwater shots, which is really interesting because um, what is now the Disney Nature series uh, that was going on, it was starting to to blossom in the 50s. uh, And they were taking shots from all around the world. So they were actually able to use some of that stock video footage in this film to really show you some of that underwater life. And I'm just thinking about sitting there in the theater as someone uh, in the 1950s, having not been able to see this yet, and just see this beautiful, beautiful underwater shot that you get uh, throughout the entire film. And so, Brett, can you speak to the production and maybe how it's filmed? It's it's filmed in Cinescope. Cinemascope. In Cinemascope. Anyway, it's a gesture, very large screen. Anyway, it was only so, a year old at that time. Yeah, so that was, uh, yeah, Cinemascope. So let's see. Well, actually, um, production value-wise, well, I watched this, um, and I think you all did too, watch The Making Of. Well, I guess it was part of the um, From the Vault collection, or what was it? What was that? Uh, Disney, back in like the 2000s, released a series of DVDs called Vault Disney, and they each all had like a really great documentary attached to each yeah. of them. Yeah, so, but we learned so much. Actually, I watched that first because I thought that would be a nice intro into the film. And it was, so I didn't, anyway, so I stayed awake when I watched it. 
Anyway, not the first time though. Not the first time I'm like going, oh, not the first time I'm like going, oh, I don't think I can do this. So, so yeah. So the production design was just amazing. And oh yeah. So let's see. Um, Harper Goff was the production designer, uncredited. Can you imagine? Uncredited. Um, And he had worked um, with Disney um, uh, on a number of things, including he had designed, because this is, because this was released in July of July of 1955, which was shortly, it was really shortly after the opening of Disneyland. Well, Harper Goff um, also did the production or did the design for the Golden Horseshoe there. So busy times at the Walt Disney Studio. Anyway, but Peter Ellenshaw was the mad artist and he was uh, probably everyone really knows him uh, from the matte paintings from uh, Mary Poppins, but he was very renowned and very highly sought after. Uh, I think Disney had him most, but uh, yeah. And then uh, Y Works, um, Special Processes and John Hench, Special Effects. It was kind of like, you know, we're doing this film and, and Walt brought, you know, we're doing this film and brought he brought all of his best people to help out with a massive production. But it was gorgeous, gorgeous. The sets are gorgeous. I don't have the actual... There was an actual set designer, but it's like Harper Goff did, Goff did like the pre-production sort of thing. So they they took the lead from that. But again, gorgeous. And, and as Disney effects, fans, of course, yeah. we know Harper Goff would later go on to uh, really have such a huge influence on many of the attractions we know and love in the Disney parks, including the Haunted Mansion. And uh, just having his... A piece of the Haunted Mansion all throughout that ride that lives on to this day. And so we almost attribute Harper Goff more so to the Disney parks at this point, but he was so integral to a film like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, Brandon, you mentioned CinemaScope was about a year old at the time. Talk to us about that evolution of that technology. And in the 50s, this was a turning point for film, right? So many of the uh, pictures that were coming out in the 40s were still transitioning between that black and white versus color in the 50s they pretty much were all being released in color at this point right or am i wrong on that most movies like this um i like like serious dramas were probably still being done in black and white because really directors kind of had their choice at that time is this more of a black and white story is this more of a color story but that all kind of changed in the 60s and 70s when black and white wasn't selling well overseas was it like kind of an air of pretentiousness like when uh quentin tarantino releases it on 35 millimeter or or christopher nolan is like no you have to you can't use digital is that kind of uh or was it more of like it was more yeah, artistic. Do we do we more want people to pay attention to the actual character development, or do we want them to pay attention to the pretty sets around us, or you know things like that? So, um, so talk to me but, about CinemaScope. Yeah, and the um, well, I guess yeah, in the late '40s, that was when the studio system started dwindling a little bit because Congress decided that studios could no longer own their own theaters and you know we're dealing with that again here lately and um so so there was a um they decided it was a monopoly and so the studio system was breaking down and also television had just come in and less and less people were going to the movies when they could stay home and watch something in their living room for free so hollywood decided well we need to come up with something bigger and better that will get people back into theaters again so they this so they created the 
widescreen process, which, you know, multiplied the, you know, size of the screen that they were used to seeing in theaters by double. And, you know, and there were all these crazy things that they tried. So there was CinemaScope and Cinerama, VistaVision, all this kind of stuff. So um, Disney was one of the first studios to jump on that bandwagon and really um, embrace the new technology where some studios thought things were just fads and held back. You know, he really jumped in and embraced that. And this movie takes full advantage of the CinemaScope screen. There's some shots in this where, you know, it would have been diminished by half the size and the regular, you know, screen size that you would have seen, you know, 10 years earlier. Very cool. Vanessa, your thoughts on the overall look of the production uh, and the scope of the production in this film? It seems like such a huge task for that time. And in fact, even this the whole intro to the movie, I was kind of confused of what was going to happen because it starts in this uh, Western setting, which I'm assuming, you know, you think about old Hollywood Western sets and you're expecting it just to be just the facade of the storefront, nothing behind it. And I'm thinking, huh, like, how are they going to go under the sea with these? I mean, this is going to have to be pretty elaborate compared to the intro of the film. And then once you start to see the the design of the scuba gear, I mean, I thought that probably was the most impressive thing to me. Because um, I know this is in the 1950s. And it's like, I don't know how frequent everyone's going scuba diving but then to add on pieces to make it look futuristic I was like wow this is this is really cool for this time that they're doing this coupling that with the underwater footage which again is just very tranquil and which by the way for the record I also fall asleep in Finding Nemo so I don't know if it's the sea or if I've like been hypnotized that every time I hear Nemo I'm just like Nemo so (laughs) Nemo she's out so anyway but I I love the way this film is shot I think it's very beautiful I especially love the scenes that were filmed in the Bahamas Um, because you look at the screen and and you're like wow like I want to go there this looks like a postcard and it's not something I would necessarily expect from a film that was made in the 1950s um you know now we have these huge screens that are so high tech and and they're just so pristine and clear and you're and you're like wow i want to go there but i felt that same way when watching this film so anyway it's just beautiful and i and i really love how well it was done now brandon before we start to dive in dive in right Dive Very in. nice, Craig. It, Very you nice. know, it doesn't even. It, it came out, and I immediately wanted it back, and I couldn't. I couldn't get it back in, guys. Uh, Were you fishing for compliments? Ah, I, just yeah, kidding. absolutely, um, absolutely. <laughs> so Man, clever. Those puns are just going to be my ah! anchor someday. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Brandon. So before we dive into yeah. talking about the actors and uh, the people that brought us this film. I, you have an interesting story about who directed this picture. Yeah, the director of this movie is Richard Fleischer. This was his first film he made for Disney. And um, interesting tidbit, he was the son of Max Fleischer, who, you know, a couple decades before was Walt Disney's biggest competition. You know, he created Betty Boop and other famous cartoons. Felix the Cat. And um, so I think Richard Fleischer, and he mentions in the documentary that um, there was a little bit of suspicion on his part that Disney hired him and wanted him because he thought 
is Disney setting me up to fail here? Is this going to be, you know, some kind of thing where it's just going to be a giant embarrassment? But Disney kind of put all that to the side right away, and he invited both Richard and his dad over to the studio for a lunch that day and just, you know, treated them all as, you know, his special guests and put them all at ease right away. And uh, apparently uh, Richard Fleischer's dad even said, tell Mr. Disney he's got great taste in directors. That's great. Aww. That's great. That would be like, um, what would that be akin to today? That would be like Tim Cook hiring Jeff Bezos' kid, right? Yeah. Is that what the, Kinda. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. um, this is a really interesting hire for sure. And it was one of uh, Fleischer's first films, right? So right. It's, just, it's just really interesting that the, the risk that was taken, um, the, the scope of this film, but also, like you said, all those Hollywood stars that came out for this picture. And I think if we can get him back for just a moment, I, I think we can hear James Mason critique himself. I think that that is a possibility um, if we can. Well, James Mason here, talking about James Mason. And, well, there were times when I had questions of, who Captain Nemo is, but I found that throughout my varied career, those questions have served me well when it's time to in fact go into the film because do we really know who Captain Nemo is? I ask you. That's very true. And you know, I have to tell you that you've really kept up your your uh, features and you really look great. You look well, you look just like you, you did <clears throat> back in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. In fact, for yes. our video for our video friends, I, I think I need to share a picture of you because I'm not sure that they know exactly what you looked like on set. Look at that. Just I, um, wonderful. Now I'm in color. I was I'm in technicolor. I was in I was in full color in the film. And I quite enjoyed that, yes. Um, I can't wait to tell you about Peter Laurie and Paul Lucas and Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas. Why do I have a printed Kurt? It's Kirk, isn't it? Who is Kirk? Who am I speaking with now? Uh, Oh, Beyond the Mouse. I remember. Hello. 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 James Mason here. Talking about 20,000 leagues. This is too much. This is too much. I need to tell you all that I really enjoy uh, James Mason's portrayal of Captain Nemo because it has a seriousness to it. It has a level of foreboding to it. Uh, it, He is not a happy man. He has not had a great life. And you can kind of tell uh, the weight that he's carrying on himself during this picture and the uh, just I really enjoy, like I said, it's like a master class in acting. He, he is such a wonderful antagonist to this, this film and almost like an anti-hero because you do see some virtue in what he's doing, but he's almost essentially leading a cult at the same time. I mean, his, his crew is going to, uh, they are, they're going to follow him to death if need be. Uh, and it just really, you need someone that is such a strong presence to fill that role. And James Mason, I think is it. Brandon, talk to me, your thoughts about James Mason. Yeah, he, James Mason really put his mark on this role and has it 
forever, I think. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about remakes options at some point later on, but I, I don't think any other actor could do this justice because he's not, he's not playing it like he's in a Disney film. He's playing it like it's Shakespeare and he does it from the very beginning. And he's so subtle. He's such an internal actor compared to Kirk Douglas, who's external. And he just, from his eyes and he, he's likable. You like him. He's an elegant man. He's, um, and, and he's doing this for all the right reasons. And I, I, when you and I were watching this, Craig, um, you know, he and I have been doing Friday night movie viewings long distance since COVID started. And uh, 20,000 Leagues was one of the movies that we watched. And I think I texted you, um, you finally made me a Marvel convert because all I see when I see Captain Nemo now is Thanos. Because <laughs> it's, I said I'm it's, Doctor Strange. Yeah, I, 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 kind of, Doctor Strange in style, but Thanos in motives. Okay. But I thought, <laughs> I thought, you know, really good motives but really bad way of going about it <laughs> so but 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 yeah uh, he's he's perfect in the role and really he's this likable and he's not really a villain he's an anti-hero i think you put it well earlier on yeah he he uh he does so much acting with his eyes and i appreciate just the level that he brings this to and the seriousness that he gives this because you don't normally get that necessarily out of an adventure type film. And especially like you said, Brandon earlier, this was uh, Walt Disney's first foray into this more serious type of picture. And so to have a very serious, a very well-known actor in this role just seems perfect to me. Vanessa, your thoughts on James Mason. Well, I agree with Brandon. I love his subtlety. And in fact, it was it was even throwing me off a little bit because, again, with uh, some of these movies that are act, uh, acted a little bit like stage plays, you know, it, the the acting is a little bit heightened. So it's a little more direct and dramatic and the emotions are a little bit more quick. And um, I noticed with James Mason and his characters, there was this subtle buildup. And I, for me, it really, what confused me was in the um, Saccata and Fugue in D minor scene where he's playing the organ. And I'm like, what, why is this in here? Why, why do we have this foreboding music? And why is he looking so confused? And, and then you start to realize, I think that this character is struggling with his convictions. And, and I think we see that in his face when he's taking down the worship is that he, he feels he's doing the right thing, but underneath that, there is some um, tumultuous feelings about what he's doing because he's killing a bunch of people. So um, I, I think he handled that just so well in his acting and there really couldn't be anyone else to do that role that was in this film. I mean, Kirk Douglas, I don't think it could pull off this role. He's just like Brandon said, he's, he's an extroverted actor. So um, James Mason, I thought was very good and, and keeping the character likable. Um, I think that's so important, especially for like a family film. You, you don't want to just have hate for any of the characters you want to like, even our Disney villains. We love, we, there's something about our Disney villains that we love, even though they're the bad guys. I think this is so perfect in this film. Can we get Brett back? Is, is Brett available to comment? Brett's on here. He just Mason? looks really different. So he looks very serious. So, well, what did you want to know? About James Very hard Mason. for me not to say it like James Mason. Go ahead. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the actor? 
that you are now portraying <laughs> and the yeah. character he portrayed in 20,000 Leagues. Oh, this is so Inception. <laughs> it's so meta. Anyway, um, I thought I thought he was, it was very interesting to see kind of the, the journey of his character um, because he's, you know, set up to begin. I mean, he's kind of this monster because, you know, he is because of uh, the whale of a tale that everyone's been telling is that there's this monster in the ocean and then there, we're kind of finding out, is it a monster or is it this guy, you know, and... Uh, and he just shows us all of the layers of the character, which I really enjoyed. And considering that I do an impression of James Mason, I I have a certain fondness for him. Anyway, oh yeah, I'm like going, gosh, it's getting easier. That brunch is gonna happen. We we need to get we need to get so far away from James Mason. We're gonna go <laughs> to the protagonist of the film, the hero of the film, the person that we all want to go and have a beer with. Vanessa thinks he's pretty foxy. We're going to get to that right away. We got to talk Kirk Douglas. Ned, he has a whale of a tale to tell you, lads. A whale of a tale or two. Maybe he has two tails on this whales. (laughs) Vanessa, talk to me about Kirk Douglas. Well, you are right. He is a total fox. And I had a hard time concentrating in this movie because I just kept giggling every time he came on because he's just so darn charming. And he Kissing holds... Kissing seals? Oh, it's like I've never wanted to be a sea lion more, you know, whiskers and all. So, <laughs> um, yeah, he just, he's so magnetic he's just every time he's in a scene he just I feel like he steals the scene he's just got so much energy and uh what was interesting is in the the making of they're talking about you know he's not the tallest guy in the world although I wouldn't say he was short by any means but compared to James Mason you know he's he was a little bit on the shorter side but he carried the scene so well and just seemed larger than life and and he is a total fox. And confession, not, this is going to sound really weird, but um, he reminds me of my grandpa. And my yep. grandpa was pretty dapper and foxy. Um, you know, not when I was a kid, but when I looked at his older pictures, ooh, I mean, him and Kirk Douglas, they look like they could be brothers. Oh, man. Anyway, um, that's really weird. But Yeah, you're right. It sounded totally weird. <laughs> you're right. They're- but uh, what I mean is like they're the cut. They're That's the, okay. It's really best not to explain it. Just no, no, no. But they're the <laughs> they're the type of guys that are so charming that they could walk into a room and call you toots, and you would not mind at all because they're just charming guys. So there you go. Kirk Douglas is ten stars for me. You have to tell us uh, which of the three men on this podcast are toots level charming. Uh, no, if when... any of you walked in and called me toots, I'd be like, what is your problem? Why are you calling me toots? You do not. I'm <laughs> Why sorry, is James fellas. Mason calling me toots? I'm so sorry, but you guys are not a Kirk Douglas level where you can just walk in and call me toots. Don't do it. Okay. Brett, talk to us about Kirk Douglas and his role in the film and your thoughts on his uh, the character he brings to to it. Well, I think it's, I mean, it's a star vehicle for him, and yet he allows the other actors to shine too. So he he shares the stage quite well. Um, he sings, 
which he wasn't known for singer to be a singer. And um, they, they recorded The Whale of a Tale. He learned how to play guitar, again, from Harper Goff. And filling every moment, that was what's so, what was so cool about the documentary, again, that the little part in Whale of a Tale, he fills you know, with the little, I'm throwing the guitar, I'm picking it back up and, and keeping rhythm. I thought that was so cool. He was a powerhouse. Absolutely. Brandon, talk to me about your thoughts on Kirk Douglas, who recently left us. He February. lived to be 103? Yeah, 103. So 103 years Catherine, old. If, if uh, genetics work, Catherine Zeta-Jones might have her husband for another 30 years. We'll see. Yeah, we, there's a, there, there was a whale of a tail in that old man. Maybe a whale of oh, a yeah. tail or two. Absolutely. Really? You're doing it twice? Okay. <laughs> doing it so many times. Yeah. It comes up so many times. It's like it's like when you... It's like okay. me saying James Mason. It's like when you uh, finally realize that 98% of Top Gun and the Top Gun you remember from that film is it going boom, 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 boom. Like it happens so often in that film and so does Whale the Tale. You mean it that comes music? back and it comes back. Yeah, it's like every scene Kirk Douglas like walks in, and you hear the, you hear the like instrumental version, yep, and exactly, and, I, and it, I, it just sticks with you. Yeah, and I think too Clearly. that's what makes it kind of a family film is you have this lighthearted string running through, at least musically anyway. <laughs> Brett's <is> so mad. <laughs> Well, I just know it's just the way I look. For the listening audience, think of uh, a very stern-looking James Mason. Anyway, that's just his face. It's just my face. <laughs> Brandon. Oh, that's right. The, the smolder. Sorry. Oh, okay. Get my my smolder back. <laughs> I forgot it was my turn. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, no, but yeah. Okay, nice. uh, yeah, Kirk Douglas, you know, we did, we just lost him back in February. He was like the last major, I think, celebrity death before COVID all started. So, yeah, it's it, uh, it seems like over a year ago we lost Kirk Douglas. But, yeah, he was, yeah, great actor, perfect for this kind of role. Um, always, like I mentioned before, an external actor. Everything was bubbling over the surface with Kirk Douglas, but you believed it because he was larger than life in real life. And he brought that to all of his characters, whether it be Spartacus, which yes, I believe he was Spartacus. And, uh, and, Are we sure? and, uh, me. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that, Brandon. I don't mean to test you in your classic knowledge, but that right. never does. We never do figure out at the end of the True. movie. Yeah. Just <laughs> so yeah, he's, he's really, really fantastic. And also, uh, yeah, he's charming in whale of a tale, you know, he's not not the best singer in the world but he did have a hit record with it and he apparently rubbed it in his friend frank sinatra's face saying hey you and i now have both hit records we're on the same level <laughs> <laughs> that that kirk douglas man i uh i love it and you know brandon i do um i have to fight with you a little bit there because it turns out that i am spartacus uh so oh. I don't know that Kirk Douglas was. Really? Well, well, I see it. We're talking about it in November on Front Row Classics, so we can finally figure out who Spartacus is. That's right. There's <laughs> there's one of us that uh, is a dad in this podcast, and it's me, and I'm bringing the jokes all the time uh, to all okay. of you. That's what I'm here for. That's why you all hire me. 
and let me keep doing this. So let's talk okay. some about the supporting characters, particularly Peter Lorre. This is a different kind of role for him as well. You know, I, I tribute him. We talked about, and the poor actor, I never know the actor's name. We talk about the actor that portrays Wormtail and he was in Enchanted and he kind of gets lumped into these like, uh, character type roles that he does a great job on uh, and he's always going to bring the same amount of energy that was really Peter Lorre to a certain extent this is a much less villainous role than he normally gets to have and Brandon we'll go right back to you this time so you can talk about him first kind of he's like the everyman in this film yeah and uh, Peter Lorre was quoted as saying Walt Disney cast a squid in the role I would usually play so <laughs> so yeah it's it's fun to see him do something so lighthearted because he always just plays these little weasley characters you know he plays a you know a black marketeer in Casablanca he plays you know um uh, Joel Cairo who he plays in the Maltese Falcon is you know just someone you want to punch in the face you know it's all these all these different characters and he he played child murderers and he was in horror movies and all this kind of stuff so it's really fun to see him play just this fun sidekick who goes on adventures with Kirk Douglas and I'm sure it was fun for him to do too because yeah he's he just has this unforgettable face unforgettable voice and yeah I, I would love to have seen him do more comedy because he was great in this and he really brings the lightheartedness that you need from a story that can get heavy at times. Absolutely. Brett, talk to us your thoughts on Peter Lorre. I agree with Brandon. I think that this was a, an opportunity for uh, for Peter Lorre to show his comic side, which he, again, should have done more of those. So anyway, whenever I see him, I'll be shy to tell him, you know, Peter, you should have done more comedy because you're quite good. Where exactly will you be seeing him, Mr. Mason? What the... What, what the the twenty thousand leagues I, under the sea reunion. We Cat have reunion. we have a group chat and <laughs> Zoom group chat <laughs> every uh, other Tuesday. Okay, okay. Do you do you Zoom or is it more of a Skype? It's never never mind. It's okay. <laughs> Vanessa Peter Lorre. I thought he was great. Um, for all the reasons that everyone else has mentioned. Um, but I especially enjoyed the scenes with Kirk Douglas. Um, it was almost like an Abbott and Costello situation. You know, he played a very good straight man uh, to Kirk Douglas's shenanigans in that film, or Ned's shenanigans. So, and that's not an easy thing to do. People often think being the straight man is very easy, and it's not. Um, but he did a fantastic job. I almost feel like you get to go along with him in this and like you, he's really providing you that in as the audience to this wild uh, story and this very adventurous story. You are Peter Lorre as you go through. I guess that means that you die sometime <laughs> in the middle of it. I don't know how that works out, but, um, but no, it, it's, it, he does such a great job. And also Paul Lucas uh, as the professor uh, equally talented actor and really brings his level to uh, the level of the other players because you uh, could in some sense have such an overpowering actor like a Kirk Douglas, like a James Mason really shadow these uh, supporting characters, but they do hold their own. And I almost think going back to Vanessa, the thing that you said at the beginning that this seems like a 
it feels like a stage play. Mm-hmm. It, it does almost seem that way in the sense that the supporting actors are felt just as much as our leading players. Uh, do you have anything on Paul Lucas that you wanted to add there, Vanessa? Oh, just that I agree with you. I, I think he just holds his own very well. Um, his role in this film is just so essential in making sure that um, plot-wise that Nemo isn't perceived as a complete villain. And um, while we feel like uh, Peter Laurie's character, we have the logic given to us and explaining through his character. And and again, that is tricky to do. Um, because you don't want to be just the narrator of the film you have to act it and I thought he did a a great job even though he has one of my least favorite lines in the well uh, I guess it's kind of my favorite because it's so silly but the silliest line in the whole film Uh, but he also did a very good job I think it was very smart of Walt to hire really trained well-trained actors for this film yeah what what was that line now we gotta know we gotta know what your favorite silly line was well, when he says, um, uh, Nemo says the, the, the island is called Volcania, and the professor says, hmm, sounds remote. And I was like, what? What? How do you know it sounds remote? What? Nothing sounds remote. I thought you were going to say when he walks into the sub and goes, hey, toots. And then you go, wait a minute, Paul Lucas. You can't not, do that. You're not Kirk Douglas. Keep your mouth shut, sir. No. You keep your mouth shut. All right. We uh, we spend so much time on these actors. Brandon or Brett, either of you want to jump in on Paul Lucas, or should we just go right on to uh, talk some about the Disney Parks aspect of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Maybe also a bit of our favorite scenes, although we have covered a lot of those. Uh, but your thoughts on Paul Lucas, either of you? It was a joy to work with. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, James, for for getting in there. Uh, Brandon, any final thoughts on Paul Lucas? Uh, he's he's great. He doesn't get as much to do as the other three, which I think um, has been reported. He had some frustrations behind the scenes because of that. And wasn't quite a happy camper compared to everybody else because he was an Oscar winner already. But um, but but no, he's he's fine. It's just he's essential to the plot, but he doesn't really get to be in on all the fun that the other three do. No, that's very true. That's very true. Speaking of fun that everybody gets to have, we are Disney Parks fans here, and this movie has such a great history, a storied history within the Disney Parks. So uh, Disneyland opens in 1955, and almost immediately there is an attraction that was basically what happens at one man's dream today. They brought in the props, they brought in some of the sets, and you could kind of explore your way through 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And that was open for four years at Disneyland. And of course, we've spoken to Bob Gurr and a couple of the other Imagineers uh, that that really decided to put in Submarine Voyage. And Submarine Voyage is something that it persists to Disneyland today. And hey, it even has Nemo involved in it at Disneyland. And then of course, we have the creation of the 20,000 Leagues attraction at Walt Disney World, which uh, was extremely popular for its time. A lot of people think that it was taken out of the parks because of its lack of popularity, and that could not be further from the case. The problem with it was is that it's very hard to fit a lot of people into a submarine and really keep them going throughout the day. And uh, for something to take up that much real estate in the park, they really needed to be also able to suck 
up that amount of people and get people through. Uh, it had a lot of breakdowns in the attraction as well. And so they did decide to take the Nautilus out of the park and uh, to remove the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction. However, you can still see the Nautilus. Brett, do you know where you can see the Nautilus? Well, uh, no, because I haven't been there. He does Nautilus. <laughs> Nautilus. Had I been on a Disney cruise, that oh, actually wasn't I guess I know. a dig. I promise to you, I threw it to you because I knew I threw it to Vanessa. Yeah. Uh, and I tried to do this like very no, no, it's always hosting dig. thing, oh but God. I really didn't mean to to dig on you there. Um, Vanessa, yes. can you inform our audience where you can find the Nautilus? Yes, it is somewhere in Castaway Key in the, on the bottom of the ocean, but you have to be a really strong swimmer to, to find it, and not all of us are. In fact, I have seen it. That's right. I in have person. seen the Nautilus pretty recently. Back in 2017, Anna and I took a cruise, and uh, we went to Castaway Key, and I knew that if you snorkel uh, it's almost like a quarter of a mile off of the shore. It, it is quite the haul to get out there, but it is really cool. You can look at the POV videos online as well. Um, I would say that we've, we're just talking to our son about the cruise and, you know, he wants to go on a Disney cruise someday. So we were watching a bunch of videos. Uh, we've mentioned our love for the trackers on this. So if you look up the Tim Tracker video where they go to Castaway Key, they do show you the snorkeling and where you can find the Nautilus. And it's really cool to see that ride vehicle because one of my uh, memories from going to Disney World as a kid was riding 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea before it was taken out of the parks. So it's cool that it has, it still has a life within the Disney parks or within the Disney company. And it's just interesting that they, something that this movie uh, has such an indelible mark throughout the history of the Disney parks as well. It's just really interesting. And maybe that's because uh, it did come out so close to the time that Disneyland was opening. Uh, but still, it's just really neat that this property is something that's almost a bit of a hidden treasure within the Disney company and within the Disney parks. Very cool stuff. So I do want to talk about our favorite scenes as well, uh, if there's something that hasn't been mentioned. And what I'll talk about is something that I feel like uh, I meant to mention during the production design, but I love the largesse just of the submarine because you do get this sense that it's a very grandiose sub. And of course, we have seen many submarine movies since then, and generally they make me feel claustrophobic because it is such tight, cramped quarters, but this is just beautifully done. And so I don't necessarily have um, an exact scene that ties into that, only to say that I love, again, that production design and the way that it makes this sub feel magical because you know that it is kind of a smaller sub, but it's almost like, um, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing it, that it's larger on the inside. Um, and I, I just absolutely love it. So uh, kind of like the TARDIS, I guess, from Doctor Who. But Brandon, talk to me. Do you have a favorite scene you wanted to call out? Uh, well, the greatest set piece in the movie is the squid battle. And mm -hmm. it's it's so well done. I mean, when you think about this is a movie from 55 and they're working with a huge animatronic squid puppet. And, you know, and the, and the, the great story about that is it was shot twice. They originally shot it 
um, during sunset one time. So there was still daylight and it looked kind of beautiful in the background, but it was a disaster because you could see all of the strings. You, it, it just looked fake. And when Walt Disney saw the rushes, he said, I'm not going to have that in this movie. It looks too fake. We got to reshoot it. And so they spent all the money to set it up again. And they shot it at night and did it during a thunderstorm, which during all the craziness, you wouldn't be able to see the strings. You couldn't tell what was working and what wasn't. And it looks even more terrifying and adds to the drama. So yeah, that, that is a, um, that is one of the best set pieces I think in any of the Disney live action films. Absolutely. Brett, uh, I wonder if James Mason's involved in your favorite scene. Uh, <laughs> Maybe not. Go ahead and tell me your favorite scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what I liked is that it sort of, um, it's, I guess the scene, well, it was the scene with the headhunters um, that I, the immediately when I, when I saw Kirk Douglas, when I saw the Kirk Douglas scene, him running, I'm like going, oh my gosh, um, Pirates of the Caribbean totally stole that. Maybe they paid homage. They paid homage. They totally stole that scene, which then made me think what uh, the similarities between what we have as our, in our summer blockbusters and that this film was released in the summer. And so it was a precursor to the summer block. Buster and Ted Pole movies. So, but yeah, so it just kind of made me think of that. You know, I still stayed in the moment and enjoyed, uh, you know, the scene. But, uh, and I also enjoyed, I also enjoyed the dinner scene because I was going to learn the line because there's a lot of alliteration and all that in, you know, when he's talking about the food. Um, but I, I was going to learn that line, but I didn't have time. Sorry. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Vanessa. Favorite scene well, that you want to mention? How can I not mention the scene with Kirk Douglas and Esmeralda getting all kinds of drunk and playing the guitar and then they, he keeps kissing. Well, actually, I think Esmeralda keeps kissing him, but he keeps asking for a kiss. Esmeralda, of course, is the sea lion. So, you know, I just think that's such a fun scene after we've had something so dramatic as the uh giant squid scene that will make you never want to swim in the water ever again but then to have something lighthearted for the rest of the family to kind of take a a breather on and just have fun i really enjoyed that scene a whole bunch absolutely we're gonna start to wrap it up now but brandon alluded to this uh earlier i am gonna throw something at you we are in the land of reboots and remakes we are uh Everyone says Hollywood doesn't have an original idea to them. So let's envision that the Walt Disney Company comes out and says, we are going to remake 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I want you to cast this movie for me. Uh, so I don't want you to steal my Captain Nemo. And I feel like maybe some of you might know who my Captain Nemo might be for some reason or another. And so I would say, starting it off, I'll give you my Captain Nemo and that's Jeremy Irons. There is no one better suited, I don't think, to play the role of an anti-hero who is also uh, just such a great actor to be able to dive into this role, much like James Mason did, and bring it to the screen once again. I'm going to start you off with Jeremy Irons, and now you can give me anybody you would like in any particular role, and I'm going to go to Vanessa first. 
I don't know. I wouldn't redo this film. I I don't think you can get more perfect uh, more perfect than Kirk Douglas. Uh, even Michael Douglas. I don't think he would do a good job. And he <laughs> well, looks he's just a little like older him. now, uh, right? Unless they de-aged him like an Ant Man, right? Well, you know, it could happen. We've got technology. Um, I think just I wouldn't recast this. I wouldn't redo this film. Although I do uh, say would say Jeremy Irons is is a good casting because he scares the Jesus out of me. He's a very <laughs> freaky man. Some of his roles have been very very scary. Yeah, I don't know. I just wouldn't do it. Kirk Douglas is perfect, and you can't replace him. Brandon, are you going to cop out as well? What are you doing here? Uh, what <laughs> what do you want to cast it as? Well, you know I. For Nemo, you know, I might go a little, little off the beaten path, but I could see Idris Elba as Nemo because he's oh, a very, no. he, he's he's a very elegant person. He's got the voice, and it would oh. be sort of you wouldn't expect it coming from him. But I think he could pull it I off. I would have a new favorite character in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea if Idris Elba got cast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> And if I may chime in here, if you are oh, James deciding Mason is to back. Yes, make James. a remake, I'm not sure what that is. Why would you want to? But if you were wanting to, I do find Benedict Cumberbatch as a brilliant idea to play the part of works too. James Mason as, I mean, sorry, as Captain Nemo. <laughs> as James Mason. He should just do a, maybe a, a biopic uh, on your life, sir. I would play me. Oh, okay. You would play yourself <laughs> in your own biopic. Sorry, I don't know. I don't know what I'd do. I'm getting a little tired. <laughs> I need a, a drink of water because, because James Mason is very hard on the throat. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, do you have any other uh, suggestions other than Benedict Cumberbatch? I don't know. I'm like going, who is today's Kirk Douglas? Mm. Kurt? You've got all the the Chris's. Yeah. No. Chris Evans, Chris Chris Evans. Sure. Chris Evans. Chris Evans. Chris Evans. I'm on team Chris Evans. Chris Evans. How about ooh? How about Chris Hemsworth? And, yeah, okay. No. Just as Chris Hemsworth needs to as Nemo. No, um, guys, 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 guys. Who? No, it's got to be Chris Evans because he can bring back the sweater. He could wear the sweater and make full <laughs> sense because he's on a submarine. It could be like no. a Knives Out sequel. No, none oh, of those guys goodness. can it call could me. Be a none of Ryan them. Johnson, you need to call me. This could be <laughs> Knives Out on a sub. Knives no. Out on a sub. No, I don't that's know. right. Just Final kidding. thoughts on Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Um, we know we didn't really touch on many times. We touch on things that didn't work for us necessarily, but I feel like a lot of us were really gushing about this film. I think if there's one thing that we probably could all agree on that didn't work necessarily, uh, and that that goes along with a lot of movies from the '50s. And Brandon's commented on this, but that the whole idea of cultural appropriation and the the cannibal scene, although it was basically mimicked in. Uh, Black Pearl in Pirates of the Mm -hmm. Caribbean with Johnny Depp. It was almost shot for shot, uh, it seems like, of that scene. Well, other side of the beach, they came from the other way. That's true. That is true. They they just flipped it around. Um, Yeah, we'll do it that way. We'll make it new. 
<laughs> That's right. But any, uh, any final thoughts to this film? And if you did have something you wanted to mention briefly that just didn't quite work for you, that's fine too. Uh, but we will give our esteemed guest, James Mason, his final word, and then maybe go to Brett for a final word, because I want to see if that could happen. <laughs> if I may give you just a bit of a behind the scenes, uh, the scene, in fact, the 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 cultivation of the of the high point of the film uh, the scene i do recall when we were filming the dreaded dreaded uh, scene with the beast the the sea monster beast that that, that that there was a moment there when uh i was pulled under the water and in order to make that scene so in order for that to siri shut up <laughs> sorry so there was this one scene that I was being pulled under the water and I was being pulled under the water from my legs, from, I was being, I was tied down. And from the other side, it was our good friend, Kirk Douglas. And he didn't realize that I was in fact drowning. I didn't. And I'm happy about that. Thank you. We're happy to, sir. We are happy to. Now, Brett. I want to do more James Mason films. I'm sorry. I'm like going, we have to do, okay. I'm sorry, no. I'm having brunch next. I don't think I can stop. Anyway. Can you do, can you do James Mason inviting Brett to brunch and Brett accepting? I, can you do that? Hello, Brett. It's your good friend, James Mason. <laughs> and I would very much like to see if you could join me for brunch. Maybe next week. Oh, well. Well, that would be so nice. Thank you. Oh, James Mason. You know, I do an impression of you. I know. I just, I just say James Mason. James Mason. Oh, oh, that was quite good. That was perfect. That, that was everything I wanted out of this podcast. Thank you for sticking uh, in uh, around that, listeners. Brandon, any final thoughts before we completely go off the rails here? Yeah, I, I, I really think that it's a, uh, it's an important movie. It is a fun movie. Um, and I don't think that the Disney live action classics get as much love as the Disney animated classics. And I think that people need to rewatch them to appreciate them a little bit more. And as you said, you know, there's, there's only a couple things I would change. I think the, um, the harvest sequence goes on a little too long and I would take the scissors to that a little bit. Um, and also, yeah, the, the cannibal sequence makes you cringe a little bit just with, you know, the whole um, insensitivity to uh, certain cultures and all of that. But it's done in a spirit of fun. It's not meant to be mean, I don't think. But yeah. still, it's we, we know better now. And But otherwise, it's a great adventure film with great actors, and it's beautifully shot, and it's beautifully made, and... You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's one that people need to go back and rediscover. In terms of beautifully shot, uh, it was mentioned in our Leslie Iwerks interview that Don Iwerks did work on some of the camera work on this uh, film as well. So a little bit of a connection there, uh, which is wonderful. Vanessa, any final thoughts to wrap this up? You know, I'm just too busy over here, Craig, planning uh, exorcism for Brett. We need to get James Mason to detach from his soul. The big gun, okay. go to the light, get yeah. out of there. Yeah. Well, I'm I'll sure just we'll bring him back for brunch. Sunday, right? Yeah. <laughs> Every is... Sunday from now on. From now until forever. 
Thank you so much to everybody for listening to Beyond the Mouse. You can find us on uh, any social media, including Facebook at Beyond the Mouse Podcast, Instagram, Beyond the Mouse Pod, and follow along with us there. We love interacting with you there. We are also part of the Front Row Network. You can find them on any social media under the Front Row Network, but on Twitter, they're Front Row Reviews with a Z. You can also find us on nprillinois.org, and we just have so many so many fun surprises coming your way. In fact, you're listening to this maybe on a Friday, maybe on the weekend. If you follow our social media, there will be quite the announcement that we are going to make. And maybe it ties into this a little bit in a weird way, but we will, we will tell you that announcement on Monday. Uh, this upcoming Monday, that should be uh, Labor Day, September 7th we have a huge announcement that we're making. So make sure to follow us on Instagram and on Facebook to catch that. Uh, we cannot wait to share that news with you. And just continue to like and subscribe. And just, we love it that you're listening to our show. So make sure that you reach out to us and let us know what you like about the show. Maybe even what you don't like about the show. We can bring James in more James Mason. Mason. We can do less <laughs> James Mason. You just gotta Stop let us know. It. You just gotta let us know. Uh, but that's that's all I got for you. So <laughs> let me take over because I think I have. No, just kidding. That's it. I'm getting my holy water. <laughs> the power right. of Walt will. Anyway, <laughs> the spirit of Walt compel you. Yes. Yeah, so okay, I'm fine. The no, that's not fine. I'm, I'm bare. Uh-huh. I am Craig. I'm Vanessa. I'm Brandon. And I'm James Mason. I mean, I'm Brett. And we will see you real soon. Maybe under the sea. Ooh. Oh, wow. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Under the sea. Under Teaser. The sea. Teaser. Oh, my gosh. Now, yeah, okay. Shh, shh. We won't say anymore. Yeah, but it's, not, to... but it's not a teaser because it's in the title of the film that we were doing. Yeah. Oh, okay. But don't, don't put in me saying teaser because we want to keep it a teaser. But they won't know it's a teaser. No. Oh my gosh, I don't think we were recording. Just kidding. I'm so sorry, Brandon. I'm so sorry. You don't have it this time, Brett. uh, (laughs) You're doing all of us. I'm going to be. I'll be all of you. (laughs)